Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. As always, I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with my co-host, Naji Gupta, we'll be taking you through the September 2017 issue, Recognizing and Managing Adrenal Disorders in the Emergency Department. If your gut instinct after hearing the title of this article was to say to yourself, why are we covering this? I've so rarely come across this in my clinical practice. Listen closely, because this may be something you're missing. Primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency affect approximately 10 to 20% of critically ill patients. Whoa, slow down there for just a second. We have some acknowledgements to make before jumping into things. Oh, right. This month's issue was authored by doctors Amy Cutright, Stephen Doucet, and Claudia Bartold, all of the University of Nebraska. It was edited by Dr. William Knight of the University of Cincinnati and Dr. Christopher Zamet of the University of Rochester. They surveyed over 2,500 articles, which they narrowed down to 132, with relevance to emergency medicine, to come up with the evidence-based conclusions presented in this month's issue. Yeah, definitely a team effort on this one. So let's start with the basics. The adrenal glands sit atop each kidney. The outer medulla secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine in response to sympathetic stimulation, and the inner cortex secretes aldosterone, cortisol, and androgens. The zona glomerulosa secretes aldosterone in response to angiotensin II, which helps regulate fluid and electrolyte balance. The zona fasciculata secretes cortisol in response to ACTH, which regulates carbohydrate, protein, and lipid metabolism. And lastly, the zona reticularis secretes sex hormones, or the androgens. If you have the issue in front of you, take a second here to look at figure 1 on page 3 of the article and review the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access and all of the various feedback loops. Alright, let's get it going with the specific disease patterns. The first one to talk about is primary adrenal insufficiency, or Addison's disease, in which there is a deficiency of glucocorticoid and or mineralocorticoid production. In Addison's disease, there is an intact HPA access with sufficient ACTH production. And this is a relatively rare disease, with a prevalence of just 100 to 140 cases per million people. Like most things we'll be discussing today, primary adrenal insufficiency presents with very vague symptoms, including weakness, fatigue, weight loss, mental status changes, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Mineralocorticoid deficiency may lead to salt craving and orthostatic hypotension. And lastly, androgen deficiency, that leads to a reduction in axillary and pubic hair. In addition, without any negative inhibition from cortisol production, the pituitary ramps up ACTH production, and you might note hyperpigmentation of the skin and mucous membranes, as ACTH shares the same precursors as the melanocyte-stimulating hormones, thus causing some increased melanocyte stimulation. In developed countries, primary adrenal insufficiency is most commonly caused by autoimmune disorders. But there are, of course, a plethora of other etiologies for primary adrenal insufficiency, including adrenal hemorrhage, infection like TB, cancer, sarcoidosis, genetic disorders, and medication side effects. Check out Table 1 on page 4 for a more complete list. The next pathology to discuss is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. CAH occurs in about 1 out of every 10 to 20,000 births. It's actually a catch-all term for a group of autosomal recessive disorders that result in inborn errors of the cortisol biosynthesis pathway. 95% of cases are due to a mutation of the CYP21A2 gene, resulting in 21-hydroxylase deficiency. The 21-hydroxylase deficiency leads to steroid precursors being converted to androgens instead of cortisol and aldosterone. And as I just mentioned, without the negative feedback from cortisol, the HPA axis ramps up, which results in further increases in circulating androgens. As you would expect, without cortisol and aldosterone and with excess androgens, patients present with precocious puberty and varying degrees of salt wasting. There are actually two types of classic CAH, salt wasting and simple virilizing. 
In both cases, the disease severity is determined by the degree of aldosterone deficiency and subsequent salt wasting. In the most severe cases, in infants, severe salt wasting can be fatal if not treated quickly. On the more mild end of the spectrum, infants may present with decreased activity, altered mental status, poor feeding or poor suck, and nausea and vomiting. Virilizing symptoms include hyperpigmentation of the labia or scrotum, enlargement of the clitoris or penis, early appearance of axillary and pubic hair, acne, and early growth. In the remaining 5% of non-classic CAH cases, patients have excessive androgens without cortisol deficiency. Patients with non-classic CAH present at older ages with early puberty, hypertension, short stature, insulin resistance, and oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea in females. Next up, we have secondary adrenal insufficiency. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is distinguished from primary by a lack of corticotropin-releasing hormone and thereby ACTH production. This is most commonly caused by withdrawal of exogenous glucocorticoids. In such patients, exogenous glucocorticoids suppress the patient's intact HPA axis, and when the patient abruptly ceases usage, ACTH production doesn't rise quickly enough. And of course, there's also the more rare causes like cancer, sarcoidosis, pituitary necrosis or hemorrhage, or traumatic brain injury. Check out Table 2 on page 5 for the complete list. The next pathology to discuss is the most dramatic and life-threatening manifestations of adrenal disease. I'm of course talking about an adrenal crisis. Although relatively uncommon, given its nonspecific symptoms and potential consequences, this needs to be on your radar, especially in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency. Interestingly, in one 2015 prospective two-year study of 364 patients with primary adrenal insufficiency, 64 patients had an episode of adrenal crisis and four died. That's pretty marked morbidity and mortality. And I should point out that this wasn't just one outlying study. Several other studies found that patients with primary adrenal insufficiency, the risk of crisis was between 5 and 10 per 100 patient years. Those numbers should definitely catch your attention. If you think about it, though, the morbidity and mortality is not surprising given the huge role steroids play in the body. In patients in an adrenal crisis, lack of a cortisol response can lead to shock and confusion due to an inability to maintain the body's normal vascular tone. Since the symptoms are so vague, is there any definition our listeners can remember so that they can specifically be on the lookout for this while working clinically? If only. There actually isn't a universally accepted definition However, expert endocrinologists have proposed a definition. They define an adrenal crisis as a major impairment of general health with at least two of the following signs or symptoms. Hypotension, nausea or vomiting, severe fatigue, fever, somnolence, hyponatremia or hyperkalemia, and hypoglycemia, along with clinical improvement following parenteral glucocorticoid administration. Admittedly, not the most helpful definition in the world, but what it does highlight is that this is a disease pattern that many patients may fit into, and therefore it needs to be on our minds at all times. I think that's a fair takeaway. So now we're up to our last pathology of the day, critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, or CIRCI. During critical illness, inflammatory cytokines can overwhelm the glucocorticoid response, disrupting the HPA axis. You should think of this as a relative or functional adrenal insufficiency since there's inadequate corticosteroid activity relative to the patient's severity of illness. And it can't simply be grouped with the other pathologies we discussed. In critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, researchers have observed decreased corticotropin-releasing hormone production, decreased ACTH production, decreased cortisol production, as well as dysfunctional hormonal receptors. In addition, some patients may actually suffer direct damage to the adrenal glands from the illness itself. Basically, critical illness can cause any of the parts of the HPA axis to go awry, and even if the HPA axis is fully functional, then the receptors may be dysfunctional. And in case we didn't drive this point home at the beginning, this isn't all that rare. 
It's estimated that 10 to 20% of critically ill patients have some degree of adrenal insufficiency. This is especially true in sepsis. Overall, the most common manifestation of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency is hypotension refractory to fluids. It should most definitely be considered in all patients on vasopressors, and especially those on multiple pressors. Speaking of sepsis, that's a great transition for us to start talking about the differential. Since most patients suffering from an adrenal crisis will likely present with hypotension and altered mental status, you must concurrently evaluate them for other potentially lethal pathologies. Table 3 on page 6 has an extensive list, but let's talk about some of the key ones for a quick second. Sepsis definitely tops the differential list for patients who may be suffering an adrenal crisis, since it too can present with altered mental status and hypotension in severe cases. If there's any question, definitely start antibiotics and other management for sepsis early. DKA and an adrenal crisis also tend to present similarly with vague GI complaints and dehydration plus or minus hypotension. They also tend to have multiple electrolyte derangements. Of course, and checking a finger stick may help you settle any confusion since those in adrenal crisis are usually hypoglycemic, not hyper. You can also check for ketones, which are not classic for an adrenal crisis and are certainly present in DKA. And lastly, don't forget about ingestions. So many of the common ingestions can cause altered mental status, GI symptoms, and even electrolyte disturbances and hypotension in severe cases. This is why obtaining a history from friends and family is critically important in some of these cases, especially for patients who are altered. Yet another perfect opportunity to transition to our next section, pre-hospital care. Pre-hospital care for a patient with suspected adrenal crisis begins with obtaining IV access and bolusing IV fluids, typically normal saline. If capable, a point-of-care glucose should also be obtained. And if there is time, which there often is, a full medication history should be obtained and any medications that the patient is taking should be transported with them to the ED. In patients with known adrenal insufficiency, make sure to ask the patient if they have stress dose medications that they should be taking and if they've already taken them. Once in the emergency department, the workup begins with a thorough history and physical. Remember to always maintain a high index of suspicion as the symptoms are not unique, but there are quite a few common features. Table 4 on page 7 has a complete list, but common features include fatigue, weight loss, dizziness, anorexia, nausea and vomiting, and abdominal pain. In those with a known history of primary adrenal insufficiency, patients may also report salt craving. But as we've said a number of times already, these cases are often not clear-cut diagnoses. Look out for a history of autoimmune disorders like thyroid disease, type 1 diabetes, and celiac disease, which place the patient at a higher risk for primary adrenal insufficiency. And make sure to get a medication history, including any recent steroid usage, as abrupt cessation is a common precipitant. But back to those with known adrenal disease for a second. Obviously, an adrenal crisis will be on your radar, but in general, look out for patients that appear more ill than their chief complaint would typically indicate. Once you've started your workup, persistent hypotension, greater than expected altered mental status, and new hyperkalemia with hyponatremia or hypoglycemia should all be clues. We'll get to treatment in just a minute, but before you get there, even if you think you're diagnosing the patient with an adrenal crisis, your HMP must focus on a precipitating cause. GI illness is the most common cause, but other common causes include infection, surgery, trauma, or medication noncompliance. On physical exam, the most characteristic finding would be hyperpigmentation of the skin and mucous membranes, especially in sun-exposed areas. In female patients, you may also know alopecia in the axillary and pubic regions. In those in a true crisis, they will typically be ill-appearing and hypotensive upon presentation. Keep in mind, though, that such patients often have a low baseline blood pressure, so you need to look back in the chart to help determine their own baseline. It's also important to be on the lookout for the stigmata of chronic exogenous glucocorticoid usage, like moon facies, a so-called buffalo hump, thin extremities, 
and pink stretch marks on the skin. In pediatric patients with severe CAH, they may appear dehydrated, have poor tone, poor feeding, decreased activity, altered mental status, and nausea and vomiting. They may also have ambiguous genitalia, although this is hardly a requirement. So clearly a tough diagnosis to make. Let's talk about how we can use lab testing to help us. Great. So every patient with a suspected adrenal crisis should have their glucose, electrolytes, creatinine, and LFTs checked. Additional testing may also be warranted as part of the hunt for an underlying stressor, such as an infection. A UA and urine pregnancy test in females are a must. Table 5 on page 9 highlights a complete list of recommended tests and the rationale for each one, so definitely check that out. The classic electrolyte disorder seen in primary adrenal insufficiency is hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, and hyperkalemia, with hyponatremia being the most common. 90% of new presentations will have hyponatremia, whereas only 50% will be hyperkalemic. Hypoglycemia is more common in the pediatric patient population. Remember, though, that even when all these findings are present, this can only raise suspicion and, of course, does not make the diagnosis. So at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, what about adrenal function testing? Not indicated in the ED. Whoa, way to steal my thunder there. There's no role for adrenal function testing in the ED for patients with known adrenal insufficiency as the tests are time-consuming and difficult to interpret. However, if it's in line with your institutional protocols, collecting additional blood work prior to steroid administration to help your endocrinologist is definitely reasonable. And if you are going to send these initial tests, it's important to at least have a baseline understanding. So let's spend a minute going through them. Good idea. The first test is the cortisol level. Normal cortisol levels follow circadian rhythm, so the quote normal activity covers a pretty large range, and in the setting of stress or illness, the normal is actually shifted a bit higher. In general, a cortisol level of less than 10 micrograms per deciliter is highly suggestive of the critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, or CIRCI, that we mentioned before, and less than 3 micrograms per deciliter is virtually diagnostic. Be aware, though, that the most common test for cortisol measures both the free and the protein-bound cortisol while just the free cortisol is the one that's biologically active. One additional test to be aware of is the ACTH level, which may be paired with the cortisol level. This is ideally drawn in the morning, given the circadian nature of the hormone levels. A low cortisol level and a high ACTH level raises concern for primary adrenal insufficiency. Oh, and there are actually three other lab tests to be loosely aware of since we're on the topic. The ACTH stimulation test can be used to diagnose primary adrenal insufficiency, whereas the overnight metarapone test and insulin tolerance test are the gold standard for diagnosing secondary adrenal insufficiency. Definitely not tests we routinely turn to in the ED. All right, the next topic to talk about is imaging, and this is going to be pretty short and sweet. Adrenal imaging for new onset adrenal insufficiency is not indicated in the ED. Wow, that was short and sweet. Let's keep moving forward. On to treatment, the meat of this issue. Treatment begins with appropriate symptomatic and supportive care, specifically adequate IV fluid resuscitation and correction of electrolytes. In those with known primary adrenal insufficiency who are unstable, stress-dose corticosteroids should be given immediately. Steroids are also indicated in those who are suspected of having secondary adrenal insufficiency from their history. Although we've been using the terms, quote, steroid and corticosteroid rather generically, it's time to get a bit more specific. Corticosteroids have anti-inflammatory, glucocorticoid, and mineralocorticoid effects. When used chronically, they also have negative effects like growth retardation and androgen suppression. Table 6 on page 11 nicely delineates the various available corticosteroid supplementation options. And let's go through some of the highlights of this table since this is really important. Let's consider hydrocortisone to be the baseline corticosteroid. Fludrocortisone has nearly 200-fold the mineralocorticoid activity, whereas dexamethasone has virtually none. Dexamethasone does, however, have much more potent glucocorticoid effect. 
So when choosing the ideal steroid for an adrenal crisis, you would want one with strong glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid effects with minimal growth and androgen suppression. Both hydrocortisone and prednisolone fit the bill. And even though both hydrocortisone and prednisolone are options, only hydrocortisone is available intravenously, making it the ideal agent. Table 7 on page 12 lists the varying doses for adult and pediatrics. However, just remember that for an adult, 100 mg IV followed by 50 mg IV every 6 hours is usually all that's indicated. And if you're still caring for the patient after the first 24 hours, you'll be faced with the decision of whether or not to taper off their steroids. In this month's issue, the authors don't take a clear stance and essentially defer to the admitting physician or endocrinologist. I think that's reasonable. There's also another population that requires treatment with steroids even when not in crisis. Those with primary adrenal insufficiency who are experiencing or about to experience a stressor. And stressors come in a variety of forms. Severe illness, major surgery, significant trauma, and childbirth all count. But even moderate illnesses like fever, vomiting, and diarrhea require increases in the baseline dosing. Tables 8 and 9 on pages 13 and 14 have pretty exhaustive lists of both treatment and prophylactic dosing for those with known primary adrenal insufficiency. So that covers steroids. Let's talk about fluids, pressors, and other supportive measures. All hypotension should be addressed first with IV fluids, either normal saline or D5NS if required to maintain euglycemia. In adults, you can generally start with a 1-2 liter bolus, and in children, consider a bolus of 10-20 to cc's per kilogram. If the patient remains hypotensive despite fluids and steroids, vasopressors should be used, with norepinephrine being the vasopressor of choice. In addition, glucose must be closely monitored every 30 minutes, and electrolyte abnormalities like hyponatremia and hyperkalemia clearly need to be addressed. That's easy enough since none of this differs significantly from the normal algorithms we generally follow in the ED. Alright, so that wraps up treatment. Let's move on to a couple special circumstances. The first special circumstance to discuss is pregnancy. Adrenal insufficiency is a rare occurrence during pregnancy. The riskiest periods are in the first trimester and during labor and delivery. Ideally, all such pregnancies should be managed by an endocrinologist, as the patient will need up-titrating of their steroids at various parts of the pregnancy to mimic normal pregnant physiology. In the unlikely event that a patient has new-onset adrenal insufficiency during their first trimester, making the diagnosis is really difficult, as many of the symptoms like nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, etc. all mimic those of early pregnancy. While we're talking about pregnancy, it's also worth going over congenital screening. Mortality from salt-wasting congenital adrenal hyperplasia ranges from 3 to 11%. For this reason, all 50 states have mandatory newborn screens for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Some states even have a second newborn screen between 8 and 14 days to detect the 30% of cases that are missed by primary screens. Wait, 30% of cases are missed by primary screening? That is surprisingly high. Yeah, and for that exact reason, the authors remind us that all congenital adrenal hyperplasia needs to remain on the differential for all ill-appearing infants despite negative testing. And when there's real concern, initiate fluid resuscitation, stress dose steroids, and glucose control immediately. Clearly, these infants will need admission. Great reminder. This month's issue has quite a few controversies to go over, so let's get started. The first one's a great one. It's on the use of Atomidate and sepsis. This article takes a pretty deep dive on this issue. Let's talk about a few of the studies. As some background, Atomidate reversibly blocks 11-beta-hydroxylase enzyme for 24 hours, thus inhibiting adrenocortical steroid synthesis 
So in theory, it could cause adrenal insufficiency. For this reason, it's been studied, restudied, and then studied again. In one 2008 study of trauma patients undergoing RSI, those who received Atomidate had longer ICU stays and increased ventilator days. Then, in a subsequent 2009 trial of 655 patients, there were no difference in mortality, catecholamine usage, ventilator-free days, and ICU-free days when comparing Atomidate to ketamine for RSI. It's worth noting, though, that in that study, those who received Atomidate did have a statistically significant increase in adrenal insufficiency. The topic was again addressed in a 2010 RCT of 122 patients, which compared Atomidate versus Midazolam for RSI. This essentially showed no difference in any patient-important outcome. In a 2012 review, another group specifically examined septic patients, 865 to be exact. In this review, they found that Atomidate had a relative risk of mortality of 1.2 compared to other induction agents. Despite this 2012 review, two reviews in 2015, one of which is a Cochrane review of critically ill patients, and the other one was specifically on septic patients, showed no significant difference in mortality. So to summarize, in some trials, Atominate has no effect on any patient-important outcomes, whereas in others, it increases relative risk of mortality. This is why the authors conclude with, and I quote, equipoise remains on this subject. They go on to recommend ketamine as an alternative, as it has no concern for adrenal insufficiency, and has a possible trend towards decreased mortality in some studies. Definitely something to consider in your own practice. The next controversy is with adrenal insufficiency in sepsis. As we discussed a few minutes ago, hypothalamic pituitary axis dysfunction occurs via a variety of mechanisms in sepsis. In one study, they found that the rate of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency in patients with septic shock approached 60%, which is why the use of steroids needs to be considered. It has, of course, been considered and reconsidered to get us to where we are today. In 2008, in the seminal Corticus trial, 499 patients with septic shock were randomized to hydrocortisone versus placebo, and they found no difference in mortality. They did, however, find that hemodynamics improved more quickly in the hydrocortisone group, but this came at a cost, increased incidence of hyperglycemia and superinfection. This issue was re-examined in a 2015 Cochrane review, in which they found a lower relative risk of dying at 28 days in patients with septic shock who were given corticosteroids. Perhaps most important, in the recent surviving sepsis guidelines, corticosteroids were only recommended in vasopressor refractory shock and should not be given to those who are hemodynamically stable after fluids and vasopressor administration. Basically, steroids should be given to the sickest of the sick patients. Stay tuned, though. I bet this will all change with the recent excitement over Paul Merrick and the metabolic resuscitation. Definitely something to look out for. The final topic to discuss here is the use of steroids in cardiac arrest. Literature in the early 1990s into the early 2000s showed that following cardiac arrest, patients with higher cortisol levels had higher survival rates. This theory was put to test by Cy et al., published in 2007, who gave stress-dose steroids to 97 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Although the steroid group had more patients regain and maintain ROSC, there was no difference in short-term survival, hospital discharge, or neurologic outcome. This was then restudied almost a decade later in an RCT of 50 patients with vasopressor refractory shock after cardiac arrest. They also found no statistical difference in any patient-important outcome. Although those two studies showed no difference, there are two studies that did show improvement in survival rates, which were published in 2009 and 2013. In both of these studies, they found improved rates of ROSC and improved survival to discharge with favorable neurologic outcomes. It should be noted, however, that these studies compared epinephrine plus saline versus epinephrine plus vasopressin plus methylprednisolone. 
so it's unclear whether the effects were due to the steroids or due to that entire bundle. Given that the only positive results with respect to steroids in cardiac arrest come in the setting of treatment bundles, the authors conclude that steroids are not recommended at this time. Those were definitely some interesting controversies for this issue. Let's close this episode out with disposition. Disposition is fairly straightforward. All patients suffering an adrenal crisis will require admission for electrolyte repletion and steroid administration. Vital signs and degree of electrolyte abnormalities will determine the level of care required. Easy enough. Let's recap some of the highlights of this issue and what we discussed today. In primary adrenal insufficiency, the adrenal gland cannot produce adequate supplies of endogenous steroids. In secondary adrenal insufficiency, there's a lack of hormonal stimulation to intact adrenal glands. Critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency is multifactorial adrenal insufficiency seen in times of extreme stress on the body. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia should be on the differential in any infant with poor feeding or vomiting, even if the newborn screening tests were negative, due to a high incidence of false negatives. While adrenal insufficiency typically presents with nonspecific symptoms, an adrenal crisis presents with hemodynamic instability, electrolyte disturbances, and or alterations in mental status. The signs of an adrenal crisis may mimic many other illnesses. A thorough history and physical can provide important clues. In any suspected case of adrenal insufficiency, prompt administration of parental hydrocortisone is indicated. Although confirmatory testing for adrenal insufficiency exists, it's not indicated in the ED. However, ancillary testing can be done to facilitate further workup. Steroids are not indicated after cardiac arrest. There is equipoise on the topic of atomidate as an RSI agent in septic patients. In septic shock, corticosteroids should only be considered in those with vasopressor refractory shock. All patients with a suspected adrenal crisis should be admitted. That wraps up this episode on adrenal disorders in the emergency department. Thanks for listening, and as always, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast player of choice so that episodes of Amplify are downloaded automatically. In the coming months, we'll be covering a wide range of topics, including COPD, lower extremity dislocations, inflammatory bowel disease, burns, oncologic emergencies, and jaundice. Definitely topics you don't want to miss.